The following message was delivered on December 6, 2020 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Ministerial Assistant Zachary Groff delivered this exhortation entitled The Promise of Christian Discipleship on Mark 8, 22-26. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. You are in school right now. I know some of you are, but not all of you. You're wrapping up your fall semester, perhaps finishing papers, taking exams, giving tests, maybe midterms, teaching in high school or what have you. But for all of us, whether we're in school or not, we are finishing up a year, a very strange year, a very peculiar year, a year probably unlike any other that any of us in this room have had the honor and privilege of living through. And at the end of a year, you reflect in your mind, perhaps you did this right when the quarantine happened and you had some free time around the house, um, you reflect in your mind on the projects that you've completed and the things that you've been able to accomplish, the things that you've been able to do, perhaps books you've read or, or rooms you've painted in your house or maybe you've moved and that's a huge project or weddings that are being prepared and that coming to a grand finale. You know, all kinds of things I could put out there for you. And, and what is that feeling when you close the books on a project, when you, when you close your, your annual planner on a particular year and set it up on the shelf, and you take that moment to reflect, what is the feeling that you have in general, unless there's been some great tragedy, and I will leave room for that, but in general, I would imagine that the feeling is one of satisfaction, perhaps of gratitude to God for a job well done and for a year well-lived, and for sustaining you and preserving you through even trials and difficulties. But essentially, what I'm getting at here is that sense of satisfaction. (sighs) Time to move on to the next thing. Well, would you be surprised to know that the Lord Jesus Christ, in His human nature, experienced that very same of satisfaction every time someone was healed, every time he completed a series of teaching, every time the disciples finally got it, whatever it happened to be in a particular instance. And in Mark chapter 8, the first half of Christ's earthly ministry comes to a very satisfying close. And Jesus, the master of transitions, he Even as he closes one half of his earthly ministry, he's immediately opening up the second half. And by what means? By a very peculiar healing. A very interesting healing with all kinds of interesting details. You see in Mark chapter 8, verses 22 and 26, the first half of the gospel is coming to a close and the second half of the gospel is commencing in one and the same miracle. I know, uh, I know Dr. Bookner is old enough to know this reference, but this is like a Kodak moment in, in Jesus' ministry. That uh, is an old commercial for Kodak, the cameras, you know, capture those Kodak moments, the moments when you take a picture. Um, certainly all of us perhaps will know this phrase, this is a real teaching moment for Jesus. And he milks the opportunity for all that it's worth. 
he's teaching his disciples something immeasurably profound right in the thick of his earthly ministry. Backing up a little bit, Mark in this gospel, um, if we compare him to the other three gospel writers, Mark is particularly concerned. He is very interested in showcasing Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, suffering servant and Lord of glory. But there's a problem. And in our passage read tonight, the problem is introduced in verse 18. Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? This is the problem that Mark is showing us. Christ continually runs up against with the disciples. They just don't get it. They just don't get it. Jesus is showing himself to them. He's revealing himself to them again and again, and they do not see, they do not hear, they do not understand to this point. The disciples are yet blind. It's very significant then that at the turning point of the gospel, Jesus does what? Heals a blind man. See, the disciples are earnestly zealous for the kingdom of God. I read Isaiah 40, that lengthy passage, because that's what would have been in their mind about the coming Lord of glory, who they thought Jesus was, who they knew him to be. Shortly after our passage in Mark, Peter actually answers correctly, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. Yes, they understand that, but what did they understand Christ to be? They had Isaiah 40 in their minds, not Isaiah 53. I didn't read, but it's very familiar to this group the passage of the suffering servant. They had the Lord of glory in their minds, that conquering king for whom the nations are like a drop out of a bucket, but they do not have a soon-to-be-crucified Messiah in mind. And so, through the healing of the blind man in Mark chapter 8, at the turning point of Mark's gospel again, that's so important to keep in mind, Christ here teaches his disciples that the God of the Bible, in fact, finishes all that he starts and what he's begun to reveal to them about himself through miracles and instruction and, and speaking with authority, what he's already revealed to them in part, he's now going to reveal to them in whole. And so the, the last half of Mark, the second half, is Jesus' teaching is really focused on his suffering, even as he makes his way slowly but surely, determinedly to Jerusalem to be crucified for the sins of the world, for the sins of the elect. What he has begun in them, he will follow through to completion, that they would be sent out then, at the, mark, at the end of Mark, fully equipped to testify to the spiritual realities of the kingdom of God in the world, that they would not be confused about the kingdom of God. That's his purpose. So as we come to the end of the year, I think this is an appropriate message to receive is what is it that Christ is concerned to show his disciples even before he really gets into the details of his teaching? He's concerned to show them by this healing that Christ completes the saving work he begins in you just as he restored sight to the blind man of Bethsaida. That's what I'll be teaching on tonight. Christ completes the saving work he begins in you just as he restored sight to the blind men of Bethsaida. He's going to fill in the picture that's been showcased in Mark up to this point and will continue through to the end of the gospel. We'll look at this under two headings. First, from verses 23 and 24, Christ's saving work is accomplished through direct contact. 
And then um, in verses 25 and 26, the second heading, Christ's saving work is completed through faith in him. Christ's saving work is accomplished through direct contact, focusing on the incarnation in particular. But then in our second move, Christ's saving work is completed through faith in him. He will preserve his people until and through they get a full vision of his glory. So first, Christ's saving work accomplished through direct contact. Look at verse 22 with me. They came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. You see, Christ's reputation is getting ahead of him. They know that he is a healer. They know that he can deliver this man from his blindness that he might what? Be able to see. And so these people, they might be the disciples themselves. They probably more likely are the friends of this blind man who live in Bethsaida, are bringing him out, presenting him to Christ. Jesus now has the opportunity presented to him in God's eternal decree to now have that teaching moment that I referenced before. And what does he do? Notice, taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? There's a lot of discussion, a lot of wondering, why does Jesus spit on this guy's eyes? This is bizarre. Imagine if someone spit on your eyes. I mean, in our culture, well, especially right now in 2020, that'd be flagrantly offensive and perhaps dangerous. And you'd be like, what is that about? But, um, but back then, you know, some scholars say, well, in Roman culture, in ancient Hebrew culture, there was believed to be some medicinal benefits to saliva, even perhaps to heal the blind. I, I don't know for certain that that's the case, but that's, that's one theory that Jesus was showing that, yes, I'm engaging in this healing work, kind of winning their confidence. Oh, look, look, he's doing something. But I think more significantly, when we look at the details that are appended to that spitting on his eyes, which definitely arrests our attention, look at the other details. The text tells us, Mark tells us, that Jesus takes the blind man by the hand, and he leads him somewhere. He brings him out of the village. And then after spitting on his eyes... Again, Christ's hands come into play. He lays his hands on him. There is so much contact here in what Jesus is doing. We have here a picture for us of the fact that Jesus, in coming to save, in coming to heal mankind, has a true body and makes true contact with human flesh because he has human flesh. Westminster Shorter Catechism 22 asks us, how does or how did the Christ, the Son of God, become man? And the answer is, Christ, the Son of God, became man, and this is how we put it, by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin. But those, those two phrases are so interesting, a true body and a reasonable soul. And Jesus is showing his disciples in how he's performing this miracle that, in fact, he has a true body and a reasonable soul. And when I say his disciples, I don't just mean the 12 right there, but I mean even us, even through endless ages of the church. Because again and again in every generation, this doctrine of Christ's incarnation, that God becomes man, very God of very God, very man of very man, True human nature is contested again and again.
again. But phantoms, spirits, ghosts don't spit on people's eyes. Don't lead men by the hand. Don't lay hands of healing upon men. So we have a very physical, earthy Jesus. Yes, in fact, as John tells us, he tabernacled among us. He dwelt with us in our human nature. And as we know, he even now is in heavenly places with a glorified body, a spiritual body that is nonetheless very physical and bears our human nature before the throne of grace, making intercession for us continually, day and night before the throne of his Father. That same Jesus heals this blind man with all kinds of physical contact. He has a true body, and we see that in how he, he heals this man. But then at the end of verse 23, we have a bit more of a picture of that reasonable soul. He asked him, do you see anything? Now, those of you who have had the opportunity to teach students, to teach kids in a classroom setting, maybe at home, or even in, a, let's say, a, a vacation Bible school or, or whatever, when you ask a student a question and you know the answer, what are you trying to determine? whether or not that student also knows the answer. And if you teach high schoolers, you're trying to determine if a student who doesn't know the answer has a good sense of humor and can come up with something on the spot that'll make you chuckle and laugh. But here, Jesus is asking a true question. Do you see anything? He knows the answer to it already, but he's testing. He's testing the man who's just been healed and he's also instructing the disciples with him and showcasing to them that he engages in rational discourse and reasonable dialogue because he who has a true body also has a reasonable soul. He's not going around proclaiming constantly, but he's also investigating, interrogating, engaging with man at the level of the mind. When you read your Bibles... When you engage with Scripture, do you go into it knowing that these are the words of Jesus Christ, who is God and man? And there's a dialogue that goes forth. He shapes your mind by what you read. He's, he's having discourse with you. He's talking to you. You bring questions to it, to the Scriptures, and He answers you by His Spirit, speaking through this infallible, inspired, inerrant Word. Remember, before my father died, those last couple of years uh, where his health was declining, I, I, go to him, I went to him one day, and I was really encouraged. Um, he, he was pretty depressed, and, he's, and that's not what I was encouraged about. But he, he said, you know, Zach, I've been reading my Bible. I said, really? That's great, Dad. Well, what have you been finding in, your, in reading the Bible? Now, this is a man who had read the Bible several times, not with great regularity, but, you know, he was familiar enough with it. He had been in church, but he wasn't yet converted as far as I knew. So what have you been finding, Dad? And he said, I'm finally seeing that Jesus Christ is my only hope. Really? I think what my dad was doing is he was going to Scripture looking for something, looking to be met, looking to be engaged at the level of his mind in a way that would then shape his heart. And that's exactly what he found. He approached Scripture as he would approach a person. And so we approach Scripture not because it's a person, it's not, but it is the words of a true man who suffered with us. 
and who walked among us and has much to say to us and even interrogates us. And that's exactly what Christ does with this man here. So we see here in verse 23 what I've really sought to draw out, and I hope I've done so faithfully, is a picture of the incarnation. And then in verse 24, we see the initial effect of Christ's saving work accomplished through his incarnation. The initial effect, he, this is the blind man, looked up and said, this is answering Jesus' question, I see men, for I see them like trees. This is a good translation. I see men, and I see them like trees, walking around. Now, in our post-J.R.R. Tolkien world, we're probably thinking of Ents right away. But what this man's getting at is not that he sees a bunch of Ents marching around Isengard, but rather, this man sees the figures of men, something he hasn't been able to see before, this event, but it's still really blurry. It's unclear. So there's two features, then, of this healing at this stage of verse 24 that we might point out. First, the blind man's sight is restored. How amazed would you be if you were there? You would say, whoa, Jesus actually did something. You know, the men from Bethsaida who brought him out in verse 22, they've heard of Jesus. They've heard he can do this, that, and the other thing, that he's fed the multitudes, that he's, that he's healed lepers, that he's, that he's done other healings. But they haven't yet seen it for themselves, and now they get to see it, that Jesus actually heals a blind man. But this restoration is imperfect. It's incomplete. The blind man's sight is blurry. Christ's healings from the first half of Mark tell half the story, just as this healing here gives half, up to this point, gives half of, his, um, of what he will set out to do with this blind man. If the blind man stands in in this healing uh, parable by healing, if this blind man stands in as the disciples, as a picture of Christ's disciples, what Jesus is showing them here in verse 24 is, what I've done with you so far, coming, being in contact with you, living with you, instructing you, all the miracles I've done, they tell but half the story. It's incomplete. You don't yet see fully. That's what Christ is showing his disciples through this healing. And this blind man, his sight is still blurry. He doesn't yet see everything in high death. He doesn't have full clarity. But notice... Moving now from Christ's saving work being accomplished through direct contact, moving into verse 25, having seen this initial effect and what, it's, what Jesus is seeking to teach his disciples, we now have Christ's saving work completed in verses 25 and 26. And it's completed through faith in him. Lying underneath this whole narrative is the fact that the blind man is suffering the indignity of being spat upon, being led out into an unfamiliar place by a stranger, having faith faith that Jesus Christ would actually do for him what he was hoping. And then even after regaining some measure of sight, he still stays there. He answers Jesus. We can imagine a little hint of hope. I, I see men. I see men. For or but, I see them like trees walking around. And in his voice would be this this, this um, this petition, can't, can't you give me the rest? Can't you give me the rest? I don't know why else he would stay, except he believed that Jesus could finish the job. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Christ's saving work is completed through faith in him. In verse 25, 
Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. We see the upward gaze of faith. If you have a New King James Bible, you'll see um, that in verse 25, it's rendered, then again, he laid his hands on his eyes, I think it's, and he, he caused him to look up uh, in the next phrase, and he, and he looked intently. He was caused to look intently or to look upward. And perhaps here we have a picture of what faith is. It's the work of God himself who has come in the person of Jesus Christ, causing us to look up and to behold him clearly. Faith is not of our own doing, but rather is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And here you get a picture of that. And I believe that that is a uh, better textual basis for this particular passage. In case you're wondering, the difference is that the verb for looked intently, it has a, um, has a preposition on the front of it. Um, uh, yeah, preposition on the front of it that doesn't exist in certain other manuscripts. And so on one textual basis, it's he was caused to look up. And on other textual basis is just he looked intently or looked up. I think the, the one with the preposition is a bit more faithful. That's what's reflected in the New King James and the King James Version. Um, but the NASB takes the other one. It's, it's fine. It, it functionally means the same thing. But the point I'm seeking to tease out in this sermon is that this is a work of God in Jesus Christ and then in this man, working out through this man's faith as Jesus completes his work. And we see here the complete effect then looked intently and was restored. You say restored completely, perfectly, entirely, and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. There are two parts of this complete restoration. The first part is the restoration itself of his sight, and that is clear enough. But the second part may have escaped your notice, because it almost seems to get tacked on there at the end in verse 26. And Jesus sent him, the blind man, now no longer blind, to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Why would Jesus do this? If this blind man is a picture of the disciples, Jesus at the end of the Gospel of Mark, and certainly at the end of Matthew, which is even clearer, and the beginning of Acts and Luke's account, Jesus doesn't just send them home and say, don't tell anyone. In fact, we're not told that he told this guy not to tell anyone. But Jesus sends them all forth to be what? To be proclaimers of the kingdom. He gives them a great commission. And here I say he gives this man a little commission to go home, to go home. You see, in ancient Israel, home was a place of productivity. Home, if you could be at home taking care of yourself, you get a lot done. And in 2020 in America, some of us at least know what it means to get a lot of stuff done at home. We've had to work at home for a few weeks or a few months. I was talking to a deacon at uh, Woodruff Road yesterday at a, at a Christmas party outdoors, and he said that his boss's boss's boss has had them all working from home all year. So he knows now more than ever what it's like to work from home and to be productive at home. In ancient Israel, a blind man would not usually stay at home because he couldn't do anything there. He would go out and sit in the gates and beg. He would plead with people in the village 
can you help me? Can you give me something? And it was totally appropriate. It was totally expected. That was the quote-unquote social safety net. That's what he was supposed to do as a blind man, but as a man with his sight. He was to go home in the middle of the day and get some stuff done to be productive. So Jesus is giving here a, a picture of complete restoration, not only physically, but also uh, in terms of productivity and, and social place. In terms of day-to-day -day life, this blind man was no longer utterly helpless, no longer had to be led by the hand. Now he could fend for himself. He could be productive. In fact, the disciples would no longer, by the end of Mark's gospel, no longer be stumbling around in the dark, unable to understand what it is that Christ had come to accomplish, what it is they were supposed to do. By the end of Mark, what Jesus is showing them is, even you will be fully productive. You will fully understand all that you need to be equipped to do all for which I've made you and called you to do. As we come to the close of another year, we ought to reflect on this question. What is Christ doing in your life? We see what he's done for this blind man as a picture of what he's doing for the disciples in his earthly ministry. What is he doing in your life? Closing up one year and looking forward to another. At this turning point, this master of transitions, how is he at work even now revealing to your family, revealing to this congregation, and revealing to each of you, even in your own minds and individual perspectives and daily devotional habits, what is he showing you about the nature of his work, of his person, of Christian discipleship, of your calling? What is he showing you to be true? What does it mean to follow him? For each of you, at the end of 2020, going into 2021, when there's so much just bizarre stuff surrounding us in so many categories and ways. Consider what he promises to do, taken from the teaching moment, that Kodak moment in our text today. He promises to complete the saving work which he begins in each of you, just as he restored sight to the blind man in Bethsaida, and just as he restores him to his household. That he, even he who was once blind, could now see and direct things and be a householder, and have some measure of productivity, being able to provide for himself independence on what Christ has done for him. So consider Christ's first lesson of discipleship. He took on human flesh. He came into direct contact with you and with me as a man so that he might accomplish all his saving work of redemption. If you don't understand that, you are yet to be a disciple. The disciples at this point in Mark chapter 8, they understand that. Now, they don't know what exactly that saving work looks like, but they know that Jesus is somebody special. In fact, that he is, in fact, the Christ of God. And he has come, and he has come to accomplish all his saving work of redemption of Israel, of redemption of his elect, of his people, of his covenant community. What's involved in that? The restoration of sight to the blind, pictured graphically in our text, the release of captives, the healing of the nations, would he bridge an unfathomable divide to accomplish nothing? By no means. He came to lead us forth. So the first lesson of Christian discipleship going into a new year, or ending this one rather, is let us follow after him. 
He came to lead us. Let us follow. Let us follow. All that entails. Second lesson of discipleship, also worth your consideration. You can be confident from this text and from many besides that he will complete all his saving work through faith worked into you by his Holy Spirit. And repeat that. You can be confident that he will complete all his saving work through the faith which he has planted in you, caused to sprout, and even for, I think, everybody in this room, granted a measure of fruit, that he will complete that work which he has started in you. He will cause your head to look up, to behold his glory, his goodness, and his grace. Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 17 of the Perseverance of the Saints, such an encouragement is worthy of your frequent visitation. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein in the estate of grace to the end and be eternally saved. He will bring you all the way home. And he will do this operating through the faith which he has planted in you in the first place. This is the work of God's Spirit. This is the promise of Christ. He gave this blind man his full sight. By the end of Mark's Gospel, he gives the disciples full understanding, and they go out and they turn the world upside down according to Luke and Acts. And that is what Christ is purposed to do in all those whom he has called. So, dear ones, as we close the books on a very difficult year, on a year with much confusion, as we look forward to celebrating the coming of Christ, and even as we look forward to that great second advent, when he will come again in glory and power, we will behold him as he is. You can rest assured that he will, in fact, preserve you by the very faith which he has given you as a gift in the first place. At the end of 2020, at the end of this year, your head may be swirling with uncertainties, worries, confusions, and even alarm. Certainly, we're not looking forward to some of the uh, things that some commentators are anticipating about next year, but even now, Jesus Christ is revealing to his church by the Spirit the meaning of discipleship. In fact, his grace groweth best in winter, Samuel Rutherford famously quipped. In so doing, he affirms his promise of discipleship. All those who follow after Christ will see him not as they wish him to be, not as the world makes him out to be, but just as he is. Eric Alexander, the great Scottish preacher, this is one of my favorite lines of his that I've, I've heard in any of his sermons. I've listened to a few. He said, there are no unfinished symphonies in God's repertoire. We might look in the mirror and we consider ourselves to be unfinished symphonies to be half-baked songs, <laughs> to be on the way, but nowhere near there yet. But in God's economy, the work of Christ is finished. And that's being realized in our lives through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And he's revealing himself to us more and more through every trial and every triumph, and certainly as we go to his word and have recourse to it. At the close of verse 26, the disciples are just beginning to get it. 
Jesus is the Christ. But as I've said many times, they have not yet begun to know what that means. They do not yet understand that he is the suffering servant of Isaiah, sent to give sight to the blind. They are not yet ready to suffer with him on the road to glory. Yet by the close of verse 26, Jesus has demonstrated to them definitively and with great confidence, and he showed us that they will in fact get it, that we will in fact get it. They will see him just as he is. Christ is faithful fully to open the eyes of the blind and to grant renewed sight. Therefore, for us today, considering what he's done in this miracle, considering what he's done with his disciples, we are to look to Christ who completes all his saving work. At the end of every year, at the beginning of every year, that is that to which we are called. With confidence to look to Christ, knowing that he will complete that work which he has begun, for he is faithful. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.